to, to the same playing field. Uh, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, you have this commonality in this faith. You mentioned Jew and Gentile. I think that uh, one thing to emphasize here, Romans is not saying Jews are lost and Gentiles are saved. That would That's not Calvinism, but that would be a similar kind of concept. God just arbitrarily picking one group of people um, based on some kind of, well, the fact that you're a Jew and say you're safe. And in fact, you're a Gentile, you're condemned. Or vice versa, the fact that you're a Gentile, therefore you're saved. And you're a Jew, therefore you're condemned. That's not what's going on in the book of Romans. What's going on in the book of Romans is Paul is arguing whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, to be saved, you have to have the faith of our father Abraham or of the, the, the father of those who are God's people, Abraham. Let's go back to Romans 4 and just get that real quickly. Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to start here in verse uh, 12. We're in the middle of the verse, but basically he said uh, Abraham was credited as with righteousness before he was even circumcised. And the God, <gasps> what? <laughs> Nothing. That would just that would just be shocking to a Jew to hear, wouldn't it? You're right. It would be. Okay. And so Paul says that God did it that way. Verse 12. Uh, so that or verse 11. So that he might be the father of all them that do what. I'm sorry, you cut out a little bit. I apologize. <laughs> Paul says that God did that so that Abraham could be the father of all them who do what? Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, all them that uh, believe. All them that um, believe, right. Not all them whom God just arbitrarily picked. Not all them who are outwardly Gentiles. Not all them who are outwardly Jews. Rather, all them who believe, whether they be, Gentiles are Jews, and the way he says it is this, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be in uncircumcision, that righteousness might be reckoned unto them, and the father of the circumcision to them who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had in uncircumcision. So Paul is laying it out. The criterion for salvation is faith. It's those who believe. It's not if God picked you as an individual before the foundation of the world and said, okay, Joe is, Jerry's not, that, that's not it. And I would call your attention over to Romans chapter 10, verse 11. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, uh, right after he, he makes the argument that he does in Romans 9, he says, for the scripture says, whosoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. And then he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Um, so go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you a question. So why does Calvinism teach this idea that, that God is, and of course, in their words, they wouldn't say that God is arbitrarily picking this person and not that person, but where are they getting this idea from? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And it's hard to say which came first, the chicken or the egg here, but basically Calvinism is exalting what they think of as the sovereignty of God. God chooses and decides everything. If he left any choice up to us, then that they think would take away from the sovereignty of God. Then God is not sovereign because we have a choice. But the fact God as sovereign has given us a choice. And the choice is put your trust in him through Christ Jesus or not. Put your trust in the death of Jesus Christ or not. And that's what Paul's arguing here in Romans 9. Of course, you're, you're probably, you probably have in mind the whole tulip thing that Calvinism starts with T. What's the T in tulip? Uh, Total depravity. Yeah, and if you're totally depraved and God gives you a choice, if you're totally depraved and God gives you an option, which option are you going to choose? 
uh, you're going to choose salvation if you if God. No, you're totally depraved, so much so that in your heart you can't even desire what is good. What are you going to choose? Oh, you're going to choose to do bad. You're going to choose yeah. to do bad. And that's yeah, the you're count. horrible. So the starts with this idea that you're born totally depraved, or at least logically, the system starts with that, and says so. So there can't be a choice left up to man. And so then you come to the you in TULIP, unconditional election. If God's going to choose people to be saved, he's going to have to make that choice unconditionally because if he said there's a condition, a totally depraved person wouldn't make it. And, and then it goes on from there. But Are you just trying to avoid spelling the word TULIP? Yeah, it's the, I can't remember <laughs> what comes after T-U, uh, TULIP, T-U. Um, okay, L, limited atonement. So what they do then is they say, well, if we say Christ died for everybody and there are no conditions to be met, that would be universalism. That would mean everybody's going to be saved, and Calvinists don't believe that. So they say Christ didn't die for everybody. They say he only died for a limited number, and so you have a limited atonement. Yeah, so if he only died for the people he picked, uh, then it's irresistible grace, right? That's where the I comes from. Well, yes, because the Calvinists do want these people to become good, but you can't give them uh, the option. You can't let them make the choice to submit to God's will. So there has to be a grace irresistibly imposed upon them to change their hearts to make them good. And if God went through all that trouble, they're not going to fall away. Perseverance of the saints, right? I mean, you once no- you're saved. Yeah. If you had no choice in being saved in the first place, you have no choice in staying saved. You can't be lost. Yeah, and so what you have, Jeff, essentially uh, is a domino effect. They conclude one thing, and so they realize they have to conclude the next. The system is really, in and of itself, very logical. Yeah, very logical. But if you take any one point of these away, uh, things the cookie starts to crumble. And it's not quite false premise, the idea that you're born totally depraved. Right. And so, and that's why we're talking from Romans 9 and 10 today. We want to we come to God's word and, and really see what his word has to say about this. We do have a comment on Facebook. Good. Uh, Edwin Crozier commented, uh, however, as we all know, faith is a gift by grace from God. Thus, we only believe if God chose us to believe. Well, okay. So, right. The Calvinist is going to argue that, um, and, and Edwin's not a Calvinist, but Edwin, oh, yes, of course, Edwin yeah. is highlighting a point that a Calvinist would make, which is that uh, even though if you say that, that justification is based on faith, no, it's not a choice of yours to believe. That's something God gave to you. That's maybe part of the irresistible grace. God put faith in your heart. You didn't have a choice in the matter. And they would cite Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Yeah, that's right. So they would say that, see there, Paul is saying that God gives you the faith. You That's no volition on your part to put your trust in Christ. And, and, and one little detail, I wasn't going to go down this path, but we'll chase this rabbit here real quickly. When uh, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, by grace you've been saved, and this, or the American Standard says, and that not of yourselves, that is not referring to the faith, nor really even to the grace. The that is referring to the verbal idea of being saved that that is in view in this context. The salvation is a gift of God. And and just a little Greek here. So the word faith uh, and the word grace, they're both neuter. I mean, I'm sorry, they're both feminine nouns. And in Greek, the word this is a neuter pronoun. 
it would be feminine if it were referring back to feminine. I mean, if it were referring back to faith or grace. grace. But it's not. It's it's neuter because it's referring back to the verbal idea, not to a specific noun. Uh, And we see that illustrated again in... in, um, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You have a verbal idea, obey. You don't have a noun to refer back to, so you don't have a, a noun with a masculine or feminine gender or even a neuter gender. So you just use the feminine form of this and say this verbal idea. So in Ephesians 2 verse 8, the gift is the being saved that has been alluded to prior in the context. Thanks for that comment, Edwin. All right, let's get to Romans 9. Do we have any question, other questions on, on the docket here, Chase? Drew? Uh, no, I think we're good. All right, let's go to Romans 9 then. So we go to Romans chapter 9, and um, let's start through very quickly here and summarize the first five verses where Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing pain in my heart Chase, what's the sorrow and the pain about? Uh, that's a good question. You caught me on the spot. That's why I asked it. Uh, uh, not, no, I didn't ask it to catch you on the spot, but it is. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> well, let's read it. Verse 3 and following. Four, yeah. I could wish that I myself were anathema from Christ for my brethren's sake, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who would that be? Well, he says, verse 4, who are Israelites, whose mm-hmm. adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is Christ, as concerning the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is sorrowful uh, on account of his kinsmen, Israelites, um, through whom God has worked to bring Christ into the world, and yet, by and large, uh, they... Are, are lost. And so that's how he sets this up. Does he mean every single Israelite is lost? I wouldn't believe so. I, I think he's just referring to the, the general Jewish nation. Um, Who is Paul? Paul was a Jew. He was brought up in the school of Gamaliel. Uh, he was a very devout Jew before he became a Christian. So he's an Israelite. Yeah. And is he lost? No, he's no. not lost. So, we so can read in Acts 9 and see where he's saved. Yeah. Uh, when the church began, was it made up primarily of Jews or Gentiles? All Jews. So we're not saying, and Paul is not saying, all Jews are lost. But he's going to make it clear, you're not saved just because you're a Jew. The nation as a whole is not going to be saved in mass. So we come to verse 6, and he says, it's not as though the word of God has come to naught. It's not as though God's promises have failed. I mean, God had this plan to save mankind and specifically the nation of Israel. God made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now Paul's sorrowful because Israel doesn't seem to get it. And he says, but it's not like God's word failed. So here's the question. Who is God's Israel? God has an Israel that is saved. Who is it? Well, uh, from my understanding, it would be those who are Christians, those who followed Christ, and those who walk in the faith that Abraham had um, and are descendants of Abraham. And so a lot of people today are going to say, well, when you say Christian, that means non-Jews, that means Gentiles. But that's not what Paul is saying either, is it? No, I don't believe so. Romans 9, verse 6, 7, and 8. It is not as though the word of God has come to naught, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Neither, because they are Abraham's seed, are they all children. 
Now, let's just pause there. I think what he's saying here is a couple of things. One is that just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you are part of the seed of Abraham that God has in mind. But he's also saying that there are people who are not biologically descendants of Abraham who are part of the seed of Abraham that God has in mind. Yeah, so, uh, you could think about Rahab, for instance, or or even fast forward to the New Testament, and you see that there were some proselytes as well. And or go over to the letter that is similar to Romans, but much shorter in Galatians, and Paul makes the point there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but if you are Christ, you are what? You are Abraham's descendant. Seed or descendant, heirs according to promise. So so what, what we're saying here is, Paul is saying, you become... Uh, the seed of Abraham, uh, you become the true Israel of God if you are Christ's, if you're in Christ. That's how God's nation is going to be defined. And that, that's consistent with what Romans has argued. Justification is by faith in Christ. Sure. And, and then he, he appeals back to a statement from the Old Testament here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. He quotes Romans chapter 21, verse 12, where it says, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And the reason that's relevant here is because Abraham had two sons initially. Uh, later on, he had other sons by Keturah. But he had a son named Ishmael, who was the son of the slave woman. And that was just a naturally born child, similar to the way Jewish people are naturally born descendants of Abraham. But he had another son, Isaac, who was miraculously born, you could say. Of a dead uh, woman. By a dead woman? (laughs) By a woman whose womb was as good as dead? By a woman who was like 90 years old and and the father, Abraham, about 100 years old, was 100 years old when the son was born? And this was not going to happen except by an act of God or by God's promise. And it's in that son that Abraham's seed are called and Abraham's seed are like that son in that they are not children necessarily by biology. The, rel- the relevant aspect of their sonship isn't their bio- biological descendancy, but it's, it's an act of God that makes them children of Abraham. Is that clear enough? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's the point that he's arguing. Who is not going to like this? I'm not talking about today, but 2,000 years ago, as Paul wrote this letter, who would not have liked this? Um, I would imagine the Gentiles might be on the edge of their seats in, in some ways. But are you looking for the Jews being upset? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why, why, do, you, why do you think the Jews would be upset here? Because there were some of the Jews who just had, had, from generations, had this idea, we, because we are Jews, are God's people, and everybody else is not. We, because we are Jews, are the chosen ones. We, because we are Jews, are the ones who can look forward to uh, salvation and a, and a glorious future and all of that because we are Jews. And now Paul is saying, no, you know, just because you're Jew, that doesn't necessarily mean you're in. And there are Gentiles who are going to be included who are not Jews. Uh, so, so that's what Paul has to deal with, the fact that Jews are going to say, this is not fair. And we'll get yeah. to that. First of all, let's remind. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Edwin commented again, and he said they were children by promise, not by procreation, which is exactly right. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, yeah. I like it, but he's got good, good, good handle on how to say. Yeah, something. maybe maybe he should be doing this today. I think he should be. <laughs> Edwin, he's calling you. Helps out. So, uh, to, if you do want to participate, if anybody would like to participate uh, audibly, 
and so that we hear your voice here, you can go to the BibleQuest.tv page. Uh, you can click on where it says Wednesday uh, Bible Quest, and uh, then you'll follow a prompt. And then when you're ready to say something, just click on the little hand icon, and Drew will get you in. Um, so let's see here. Uh, also, you can make your comments through the Facebook page as usual. But let's get moving here so we can get through this text because we want to get to the difficult passages in Romans 9, or at least those passages that give some people difficulty. Because here's what's going to happen. Romans 9 is going to go on to talk about Jacob and Esau and say God chose Jacob before either one of them were born. And Calvin's going to say, see, that's Calvinism. And then it's going to go on and it's going to say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He'll have mercy on whom he wants and he'll harden whom he wants. And the Calvinist is going to say, see, that's Calvinism. And uh, then it's going to go on and it's going to say you can't complain. The, the, the clay doesn't have a right to complain to the potter. The potter can do whatever he wants to. And the Calvinist is going to say, see, that's Calvinism. We have a God who can just pick before anybody's born. He can say, I'm going to save Joe and I'm not going to save Jerry. And Joe, Jerry can't complain. Uh, he doesn't have a choice in the matter, and he doesn't even get to complain about it because he's the clay. And that's what some people are going to see in Romans 9. Yeah, and if you deny that, you're denying the power of God. Well, that's right. That's what a Calvinist would say. But remember what Romans 9 is about. Romans 9 is about justification by faith as opposed to justification on the basis of being a Jew or justification on the basis of the law or justification on the basis of circumcision. And so the Jews are going to say, wait a minute, this is not fair. And Paul's going to say, yes, it is. God gets to choose. God gets to choose how he wants to save whom he's going to save. And he's made the choice, and the choice is faith. But first, he's going to illustrate that. He's going to illustrate the fact that God gets to choose by talking about some choices God made. Not only did God decide that uh, his seed, Abraham's seed, would be called in Isaac. But he also says this in verse 10. Did you read verse 10 through 13? And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Yeah. So what you have there, of course, anybody familiar with the Old Testament story will remember that there were these two sons. They were twins. Esau was born first. Jacob was second. But the promises came through Jacob. Um, and uh, now we're told that God hated Esau. and He loved Jacob, and he chose that it would be that way before either one of them were born. Boy, doesn't that sound like Calvinism? Remember what Paul is doing. He's illustrating God's right to choose. Now, does the illustration that Paul uses talk about eternal salvation or eternal condemnation? Is he, are, are, do we know that Esau is condemned to hell and Jacob is eternally saved? I I don't think we would know that. No, that's not what he's saying. What did God choose in regard to Jacob and Esau? Uh, he chose who this would come through, who his right. promises would happen right. through. These promises would come down through Jacob and then through his sons. Um, and God had the right to choose that. What about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? That's a quotation from the Old Testament, isn't it? 
Uh, from my understanding, yeah, that would be Genesis. Uh, I can't exactly remember what chapter it would be. Well, the story is in Genesis, but this particular quote is from Malachi chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel, another name for Jacob, through Malachi. I have loved you. When he says, I have loved you in Malachi chapter 1, it's an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. Israel was whose other name? It was Jacob's other name. So God is speaking to Jacob. Is he speaking to Jacob the man, or is he speaking to Jacob the nation? In Malachi, I'd imagine he's talking to Israel the nation. Yeah. And so when he says, I have loved you, he's talking about the nation. And he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. He's talking about the two nations and his dealings with the nations. Remember when Jacob and Esau were both in Rebekah's womb, uh, she was trying to figure out what was going on, and she was told there are two nations in your womb. Each of those sons uh, begat a nation, represented a nation, and God chose one nation and not the other. Not that all of the nation of Israel would be saved eternally, and not that all of the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, would be condemned eternally, no, that's not what he chose, but he did choose to put the nation of Israel in this land, the land of promise, and blessed them in certain ways and brought the Messiah through them. And so he loved Israel and not Jacob. But again, so what we see in Romans 9 is that when it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, it's not saying God decided before somebody was born he would eternally save one person and eternally condemn another person. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing, he's illustrating God's right to choose. And the thing that God chose in the book of Romans is not certain individuals to be saved, but that salvation or justification is through faith in Christ, not through being a Jew. That's what God chose before the foundation of the world. Is that, is that clear so far? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Edwin also brought up Jeremiah, the 18th chapter, um, and asking, does, would that help us understand what's going on here? And, of course, that is where Jeremiah, um, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he sees the same vision or a similar idea about the potter and the clay. Right. Right, and, and, and we may get back to that as we get down in the text, and we get to the reference to the potter and the clay here in just a bit. Well, let's come on down in Romans 9 and uh, get to verse 14. And as we get to uh, verse 14, so, so we ask the question, who is God's Israel? And Paul is saying God's Israel is those who, who believe. But then that's a choice that we make, and that's not Calvinism. Um, and then he said, God has the right to choose. And, and the question we would ask is, Paul is saying God has the right to choose what? Um, the Calvinists would say God has the right to choose whom. And you could say it that way as long as you understand the answer is not a particular list of people. The answer, well, God would have that right if he wanted to, but that's not what he's done. What God has chosen as far as whom is concerned, he's chosen those who have faith in Christ. That's who saved. And uh, the other way to say it is God has, cho has the right to choose. What did God choose? He chose justification by faith. As opposed yeah, so to he, he chose the avenue. He, cho he chose the way that we can get there. Yes, exactly. All right. So then we come to verse 14, and we're going to get to this part where he talks about Pharaoh. And the question we want to ask is, why does he mention Pharaoh? What is it that Pharaoh illustrates? Does Pharaoh illustrate the idea that God picks certain people to be saved before they're even born? And they have no choice in the matter. 
And, and a good question to ask is, did Pharaoh have a choice in the matter? And we'll see whether or not that's what Paul is trying to illustrate. So Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And you can imagine some Jews saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God just just decides that justification is going to be based on faith and, and all of us Jews whom God has dealt with for centuries are not automatically in. In fact, if God is going to allow some of us to be condemned, is there unrighteousness with God? Paul says no. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that has mercy. Before we get to the Pharaoh illustration, I want to sit on that just for a moment. This is about God's right to exercise his mercy. Um, I think there's a, a parable that Jesus tells that kind of fits in here. Chase, do you remember in Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus tells the parable about the man who went out to hire workers to work in his vineyard? Yeah, I, I remember that one. And he hires some, and they they work all day long. He goes out at the, uh, what is it, the first hour, the third hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour? I may not have all those hours. Yeah, you missed you miss the sixth hour, but yeah, sixth, ninth, eleventh. Sixth, ninth, and the eleventh hour? Okay. Did he go out the first hour? Uh, no, he goes out the third hour. Uh, okay. And so he, he goes out the third hour and well, actually that's in verse three, back in verse two, he had hired some guys to go out early in the morning. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So we've got guys hired early in the morning. They walk work all day. Then, then he hires some guys the third hour and they work a lot of the day. And then he hires guys the sixth hour and they only work a few hours and the ninth hour, they don't work all that long. And then the 11th hour and they only work maybe an hour. And then the the end of the day comes, and he's going to settle up with everybody. And we come down to verse um, 9. When they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they got a shilling. Well, they've only worked an hour. So the guys who've worked all day, they think, wow, we're going to get a lot. These guys only worked an hour, and they get a shilling. We're going to work. We're going to really get paid. Yeah, they're thinking multiply that by 10. That's right. That's right. So when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received every man a shilling. Hmm. And so they, when they received it, they murmured against the householder. This is verse 12 now, saying, These last have spent but one hour, and you've made them equal to us, and we've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he answered them and said to, to one of them, Friend, I, don't, I do you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a shilling? That was the deal that they made when, when he hired them in the morning. Take up that which is thine, take up that which is yours, and go your way. It is my will to give unto this last, even as unto thee. And why is that? Why is it up to him? Because he's the boss. He's the owner of the vineyard. (laughs) Then who are they to argue with him? That's right. They've already made an agreement. That's right. And so now you have the Jews and the Gentiles, and God says, it's my will to be merciful to Gentiles as well as to Jews, and I'm going to do so on the basis of justification by faith, faith in Christ. And, uh, and the Jews say, wait a minute, we've been, we've been your people for centuries. And, and we, you know, this is not fair that these Johnny come lately Gentiles can get in on this. And God says, look, it's my will to be merciful. I'm the boss here. 
So there is the sovereignty of God, if, if we want to use that phrase. But God's sovereignty here is demonstrated in his being the one who gets to choose the basis of justification. He doesn't choose, take away our opportunity to have a choice in the matter. He doesn't do that, and he doesn't choose before somebody's born, okay, this guy's going to be saved no matter what he does, and that guy's going to be lost no matter what he does. That's not Paul's point. All right, well, let's get back to the text. Do we have any questions or comments we need to look at? Uh, uh, no, uh, Edwin just commented and said, I really appreciate this connection with the parable of the 11th hour workers. Uh, had not made that connection before. Um, then he says, this is the Calvinist problem. He sees a passage that says God gets to choose and then reads it in the Calvinist method of choice. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. As if the one who gets to choose must choose the way the Calvinist has said instead of the way the rest of the Bible demonstrates. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9 now and uh, verse uh, 17 and we get to Pharaoh. And so verses 17 and 18. You want to read those, Chase? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Yeah. And I think the point here is there is a hardening that has befallen Israel. There is, uh, uh, it's a matter of fact that, that the Jews who did not put their trust in Jesus Christ uh, God allowed them to be hardened, and Pharaoh is, is an illustration of that here. But the question that, that we want to ask is, does Pharaoh prove, does the reference here to Pharaoh prove the Calvinistic concept that we, we have no free will? Did Pharaoh have no free will? And let's go back to the story of the plagues to which Paul is alluding here. And I want to take us back to Exodus the... Uh, ninth chapter, we really, if we have time, I think we have time. Let's go back. we got about nine minutes left, so. All right, all right. Let's go back to Exodus, seventh chapter. Um, in verse three, uh, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Sounds so wanted, pretty straightforward to me. It does. It does, doesn't it? He hardens yeah. Pharaoh's heart. I want to, I want to do two things here. I want to notice uh, how God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then I want to notice that when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that is not a mutually exclusive of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And uh, that'll be easy to see. Well, let's actually see that first. Let's go to, to Exodus, the ninth chapter, right after the plague of the, the hail, um, when, that, when God relieves uh, the Egyptians from the ravaging effects of that plague. Verse 34 in Exodus 9 says, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. Mm -hmm. And his, he and his servants. And then verse 35 says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the passive voice without saying who did it, just says it was hardened. And he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. I have hardened his heart. So the same hardening after the, hail was, the plague of hail was removed, the same hardening is described as Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's described in the passive voice, 
his heart was hardened. And it's described as God says, I have hardened his heart. So which is it? And I'm going to say it's all, it's all three. Yeah. How, how would it be all three, Jeff? Because of the way God hardened his heart, because God didn't harden his heart without Pharaoh having a choice in the matter. So Pharaoh could harden his heart and God hardened his heart. But let's go see how that happened. Let's go back to Exodus 7. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 7. And um, before we even get to the first plague, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh. And uh, verse uh, 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his serpents. I mean, servants. <laughs> I, was, I knew we had a serpent coming up. <laughs> yeah, you, you got a little ahead of yourself. They threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Wow, that's pretty impressive. You would think Pharaoh would go, whoa, okay, you've got a powerful God. Sure, if he wants the people to go, I'll let him go. No, Pharaoh called for the wise men and sorcerers. They also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. Now, real quickly, I don't think they had supernatural powers. It says they did it with their secret arts, their arts, their, their skills as magician. And later on, we're going to Notice when the magicians start to figure out that what Moses and Aaron are doing, that's the finger of God, which tells you what they were doing was because of their skill as magicians, their secret arts. But nonetheless, they come in and they throw a a rod down, a staff down, it becomes a snake. And Pharaoh, that's good enough for Pharaoh. Hey, my guys can do this. Uh, So I'm not really all that impressed with you, Moses and Aaron, or your God. So verse 13 says, Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Here's my question. Do you suppose when uh, Pharaoh called his magicians in, and they came in, and they turned their rod into a serpent, that God was up in heaven going, Oh, no, I didn't know they could do that one. No, because I think God had a response to that. At the end of verse 12, it said that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Well, he did. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, but that wasn't enough to impress Pharaoh. But the point I'm getting at is God knew good and well what Pharaoh's magicians could do. So then why would he have Moses and Aaron do something that Pharaoh's magicians could duplicate? I would reckon God's given Pharaoh a chance to humble himself. He's giving Pharaoh a chance to humble himself or to be stubborn and harden his heart. Yeah. You know what? If, if there, there was enough here to impress Pharaoh if he wanted to be impressed. Aaron's rod swallowed up theirs, or Aaron's snake, whatever. But also, not the, servants. A, not the servants. But there was also enough there that Pharaoh could latch on and say, hey, my magicians could pretty much do what you did if he wanted to. So God puts it in Pharaoh's court. He puts the ball in Pharaoh's court. Which way are you going to go? You, you, here, here's a rope. You can go hang yourself if you want. And, and Pharaoh did so. Then we come down to chapter 7, verse uh, 14 and following. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Did God force him to be stubborn? God gave him an opportunity to choose stubbornness. But you know, we can do that. I can know somebody whom I know I, I may know somebody. I know the, the person's character. I don't cause the person's character to be what it is. But I know that uh, I, I got an example. I'm from Alabama. There's Auburn and there's Alabama, and it's a big rivalry, and you can get an argument started. And there are some guys who are just vehement, vehement 
fans of Alabama, vehement fans of Auburn, and they just despise the other. And some guy, I could imagine, some guy I would know well enough, I could walk up to him and say something bad about his team, whichever it would be. I don't force him to react with a vitriolic defense of his team and an attack upon the other one, but I could push his buttons and get it to come out of it. I'm not in control. He has some choice in the matter, but I know him well enough. I know who you are. I can push this button. I know how you react. If I can do that, God all the more. And God is in control, but God isn't taking away Pharaoh's choice here. So, got a question here. Does God, does a Calvinist harden his own heart or did God harden it? Well, that's an interesting question because, um, of course, the question is, is the Calvinist predestined to salvation or not, according to their scheme? And, of course, every Calvinist is going to assume he's one that God has chosen to be saved. Um, hmm. All right. Anyway, uh, so we uh, go, get back to our text here. And after the water is turned to blood again, we come down to, um, oh, where is it? Uh, well, let's see. Fish that come, Lord said, and so Moses, and they did. And then we come to verse, oh, 22. The magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret hearts. So again, my point is God is choosing to have Moses and Aaron initially do things that Pharaoh's magicians can duplicate. And this gives Pharaoh the opportunity to harden his heart. That's how God is hardening his heart. Now, as time goes on, uh, Moses and Aaron are doing things by the power of God, um, these plagues that Pharaoh's magicians cannot duplicate. Uh, in verse 18, the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. And verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. It's interesting. The magicians could figure it out and say, ah, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the point to sum up here, we're, oh, we're out, about out of time. point to sum up here is Pharaoh is not an example of somebody who did not have free will. Pharaoh is an example of somebody whom God, who, who was stubborn, God raised up Pharaoh, knew what kind of man Pharaoh was, put him in that position, and then gave him the option to be hard, and, and, and Pharaoh chose that hardening of heart. Same thing with Israel. Those Israelites who chose not to put their faith in Christ, um, well, God would harden them. Uh, not, not because they, they didn't have free will in the matter, but if you're going to choose that course, the God's going to give you enough rope to hang yourself. All right, well, that's, we're out of time. We didn't get all the way through Romans 9, but I hope that what we did cover today would be helpful to people. Final comment, Chase? Uh, uh, no, I, my mind, I was just going to Hebrews 3, thinking about what the Hebrew writer was, was saying about the Israelites hardening their hearts there as well. All right. uh, quoting from Psalm 95, I think. So I just think that's a helpful connection. It is. It is. But thank you all for watching the webcast today, or if you watch it as a recording of the podcast. And we're going to try to get this going in future weeks where you can call in and make your comments or, or offer your questions audibly. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week.